I went to Battle Road School. Um, I was 12 years old when this happened, and I was even shorter than I am now, if you can imagine that, and I had dark brown hair, maybe even more difficult to imagine. But you know, a bit of playground culture was interesting. There was a, there was a youth subculture of mods and rockers. Who remembers those? Oh my goodness, so many of you do, yeah. Now, mods dressed in jeans and polo shirts, and they had parka with fur-trimmed edges, and they um, drove scooters. Rockers had leather jackets, sometimes jeans or leather trousers, studs, and they drove motorbikes. Now, in the playground, um, boys would approach you, gangs would approach you and say, are you a mod or a rocker? Now, you didn't have a clue because they were in school uniform. So you had to sort of gauge it. And I became quite deceptive. I would try and work out this gang that were approaching me, were they a mod or a rocker? Because if you gave the wrong answer, you'd get a dead leg or a dead arm or a twisted finger, just enough so that the playground teacher wouldn't notice. Well, this wasn't very easy for me, so I just tried to be deceptive. I lied and hoped that I'd get the right answer. It wasn't an easy time. We're looking at deception today in our studies in Joshua. So if you'd like to turn to Joshua chapter 9, and we'll read about what's called the Gibeonite deception. And it's chapter 9. What had happened was the Israelites were gaining ground and some of the kings were getting together and they were making an alliance to fight Israel. And we pick up the story in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wine skins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. Get the picture? And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. Gosh, I got through those words. That's good. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey. And on the day we set out to come to you, but now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new. When we filled them, and behold, they are now burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men 
took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Eventually, the deception uh, was uncovered, was revealed. And in verse 27, we read, But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The backstory is that Moses had given the Israelites the rules of engagement for the war in taking the promised land. They're in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2, if you want to look at them. There were several terms that God had set out for them. One in particular was that they should not make a covenant with the nations. This was to prevent them from being tempted into sin and idolatry, which would affect their relationship with God. So this story quickly follows Joshua building an altar to the Lord where he had read the law and renewed the covenant on Mount Ebal. This is at the end of chapter 8. We see how quickly the people of God forget God's instructions to them. So soon after military success or a significant event, they seem to get it wrong again. That's a sobering thought because we are no different. You and I are vulnerable after a victory. So this story has some important lessons for us. The local kings in the land were worried. Jericho had fallen spectacularly. Ahai, after the second attempt, had fallen. And the Israelites were on a roll in their campaign to take the land of Canaan. These local kings were anxious because they could see the strength and might of Israel and how God was with them. And they came together and made an alliance to fight as one against Israel. Together they aimed to defeat Israel, the common enemy. This rebellion, of course, was about resisting God because God was judging their behavior. And God is always the final judge of men's behavior. The Gibeonites in this story were living in the promised land. They thought up a different strategy. It was a cunning ruse or deception. Despite having a strong army that could probably have matched Israel's, fear over Israelites' success prompted them to deceive. And they did it with worn-out sacks and split and mended wineskins, patched-up sandals and worn-out clothes, dry and probably bread, stale bread. So wearing this worn-out clothes they, and armed with their story of woe, they tell Joshua, the people, that they'd come from a far country and wanted to make a covenant with them. Now alarm bells should have been ringing right there, shouldn't they? Were these people really who they said they were? As if to confirm this story, they showed the stale bread and the, the, the wineskins and the, the worn-out clothes and their footwear. The Gibeonites lied and gave false evidence to back up their lies. The false evidence, of course, was not convincing proof that they'd come from a far land, even though it was visible and tangible. To be fair, some of the people were suspicious and voiced their suspicions. Perhaps you live close by to us, 
So how can we make a covenant with you? Joshua also questioned them. But they repeated their deception that they were really from a far country and they wanted to become Israel's servants. And in fact, they, that is what they became. Now there's some remarkable similarities here with the story of Rahab. Do you remember in chapter two, our shady lady that I spoke about a few weeks ago? Just like Rahab, the Gibeonites believed the reports about how powerful the God of Israel was, how God had saved and miraculously delivered them from Egypt and protected their, their wanderings in the desert. This knowledge melted their hearts as it did in the, uh, the previous account. Rahab and the Gibeonites both sought covenant protection from Israel. Rahab too had lied. So too the Gibeonite delegation. However, both renounced and turned from their former lifestyles and made peace with Israel. And it seems that the Gibeonites came under the protection of Israel. And they were probably assimilated into Israel just as Rahab and her family were. The Gibeonites seem to have lived peacefully with the Israelites then for many years. And in the next chapter, we'll see a bit more about the Gibeonite story. So Joshua and all the leaders made a peace pact, took oaths and made a covenant. And we see in verse 14 that the men of Israel took some of the provisions. And in taking their food and presumably sampling it, they accepted the Gibeonites' lies and deception. The sampling of dry, moldy bread doesn't sound too appealing, does it? But treaties and covenants of the day were made over a meal and involved food and was usually over a few days. Eating with one another is important, isn't it? Families eating together is important. The Israelites celebrated Passover, which was a family occasion. And we this morning have celebrated communion, which is our family meal uh, together. So eating was very important. However, within a few days of the covenant being made, the deception came to light. But Joshua and the Israelites honored the covenant that they'd made. Joshua rightly challenged their deception and announced that they would live under a curse and remain servants to Israel. And this was the consequences of their deception. The Gibeonites became cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of God, a very menial task. But actually, this was no slow, no small job because the tabernacle sacrifices required huge amounts of wood and water. But to work close to the house of the Lord would also have been seen as a blessing, because Psalm 84 says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tent of wickedness. So we see that God had actually turned the situation round. The Gibeonites deserved punishment, but found safety and blessing and grace among the Israelites. This, of course, is another salvation picture for us, one of undeserved grace. We too were enemies of God because of our sin, deserving death and punishment, 
but Christ took and bore that punishment that we might receive undeserving grace and peace. That's the story of the Gibeonite deception. But I want to look particularly at deception. Deception is difficult because by definition, we're probably not aware that it happens. Deception was achieved through lies that were spoken and the physical evidence that the Gibeonites used to back up their story. So the Gibeonite deception was heard from what they said and was seen. Now in the Garden of Eden, Eve heard the deceptive lies of Satan. They were spoken to her. Did God actually say, and you shall not surely die? And then Eve saw the fruit, and it was delighted, it was a delight to her eyes, and she took it. So deception was complete through what she saw and what she heard. The devil, during the temptations of Jesus, used deception and lies. Turn these stones into bread. Go on, Jesus. It won't matter if you misuse your miraculous powers to feed yourself. Throw yourself off a high pinnacle, and surely God will send his angels to rescue you from the fall. Spoken deceptive words, trying to put God to the test. And thirdly, it was, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms that you can see. They weren't the devil's kingdoms to give to Jesus. Worship only God. Sometimes deception comes with things that we see and other times with things that we hear. Deception and lies is all that Satan has to work with. Here are some examples. We've got a slide coming up now. You might just want to read some of those. I've just put a few there. You can think of many more, I'm sure. It doesn't matter if I just cheat a bit. I go off early from work. I take a sickie. It doesn't matter if I tell that joke. No one will know if I just cheat a bit on the essay. Jesus is not really the only way to God. Yes, he is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. God cannot heal arthritis, cancer, diabetes, deceptive lies. These are the deceptive voices that we can hear. You can add your own in there because I'm sure you, like me, have those deceptive voices going on a lot of the time. The media would like to deceive us. The media would tell us that the church in this country is on the decline. Well, some non-gospel preaching churches may be on decline, but that's not the full picture. God's at work in this country. Deceptive lies. The second slide can see some things that we see that can be deceptive, and I've just thrown some things up there as well. Nothing wrong with a lot of these things. Take fashion, for example. Nothing wrong uh, with working in the fashion industry. I know a very passionate Christian who works in the fashion industry. She's stunningly beautiful, and that's probably why she's working in the fashion industry. But the deceptive voice of fashion, you know, you've got to have the latest 2018 spring fashions whenever spring's going to come, but whatever. Though we can, there's some deceptive things that we can see in those lists, and you can add your own to that. Excess and indulgence is an interesting one, isn't it? Because we think of maybe drugs and alcohol, but what about excessive eating? What about greed? 
wanting more than we actually need. None of these things you see that we can see are ultimately satisfying to us. They might satisfy for a while, but they're not ultimately satisfying. They can take us out, they can damage us, they can sidetrack us. See, our battle is not a physical one, but it is a spiritual battle as we seek to spread the gospel, as we seek to see the kingdom of God come. Our enemy will constantly try and deceive us in the things that we see and the things that we hear. Here's something. If you, if you cannot be taken out with deliberate sin, if the enemy can't take you out with deliberate sin, he will certainly try deception. And as I said before, deception is difficult because by definition, we're not always aware of it happening. Now, we've been looking at Ephesians 6 quite a bit recently, and in verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The deception and lies that we battle with are not primarily, primarily with people, but against Satan and his demons, who occasionally work through people. Now, there's a lot of speculation about rulers and authorities and principalities in the heavenlies. Scripture doesn't give us too much information about these. But what is very clear is that demonic forces are organized. They have a command structure. They have a leader. And they're against you and I. Scripture is quite clear that these forces are nothing in comparison with God's mighty power. Do I hear a hallelujah? Great, they're nothing compared with God's power because the battle is the Lord's and we are called to fight in that battle. But the good news is that Satan's power is limited. We're doing the, far, the uh, Freedom in Christ course at the moment, and one of the examples uh, they use of Satan's power is that it's like a dog on a lead. Satan can only go so far. A dog can only go so far on a lead, can't it? It can't run and do whatever it wants. Satan's power is like a dog on a lead. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your Adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The good news is the lion is on a lead. And we are called to resist, not to fear. Romans 8 tells us, doesn't it, that we are more than conquerors. If God is for us, who can be against us? The book of Revelation that we looked at last year told us that Jesus is the mighty conqueror and that we, in Christ we are more than conquerors. To be a conqueror is great, isn't it? To be more than a conqueror, that's what you lot are. You're able to be more than conquerors. Say to your neighbor, you are more than a conqueror. Come on, your neighbor the other side. Amen. So we absolutely and categorically have nothing to fear. In Christ Jesus, we are totally safe. And all that Satan can try and do is try and deceive us occasionally. Growl and snap at our feet, but like a chained up dog. His power, though strong, 
is limited. Satan's power is being put under the feet of Jesus. How do we avoid being deceived? I think we got the answer in verse 14 in this chapter. Second part of verse 14 says, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. So what is asking counsel from the Lord? Well, the superficial response is they should have prayed about it. It's the Sunday school response, isn't it? Either the answer to the question is Jesus or prayer. That's usually it, isn't it? You can bank on one of those being right. But I think asking the counsel from God is far more than just praying about something. Let me explain. So often when we pray, we are full of what we have to say, that we forget to seek the face of God and to listen. We talk out our problem to God, which is absolutely fine, but we don't seek an answer. We don't seek the counsel of God. The NIV uses the word inquire of the Lord instead of counsel. Inquire has several meanings. I can inquire about films or a train to London if they're running. And this gives me factual information. It gives me dates, times, prices. Seeking counsel, inquiring of the Lord is far more than this. It's not just gaining factual information. Because we can have knowledge without knowing. (laughs) You can have knowledge about God. You can have knowledge of Scripture without knowing God. It's far more than just praying. Joshua and and Israel's leaders took the decision alone without seeking God's counsel. But this is strange because Joshua had sought the Lord's counsel many times in the past. He had been mentored by Moses in this. He had Eliezer, the priest, who would seek God's counsel on his behalf and the people. Numbers 27 tells us that Joshua shall stand before Eliezer, the priest, who will inquire for him by judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. Joshua had a priest to go to. You have a high priest, a much greater high priest in Jesus who understands our weaknesses, who we can inquire of. But Joshua and the people seem to have forgotten on this occasion, as they did in the battle of Ai, as Si mentioned last week, how easy, how human it is to take God's counsel for granted and forget. Last week, we were considering the battle of Ai. After the first defeat, we read these words in chapter 7, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. That is not a picture of mere praying. That's not just a little prayer about a situation, oh God, help me with this. Joshua sought deeply the counsel of God. They should have learned from this defeat. Sadly, we are no different. You know, we can forget tomorrow, can't we, so easily. When do you inquire of God? When do you seek and ask for his counsel? 
Do you only ask when you've had a bad week? When you're in doubt, when you don't know the way ahead, when you're in some crisis, when there are two options and you don't know which to take, you've got a fit of double-mindedness. Are these the only times that you seek the counsel of God? On the other extreme, we can think that we know the answer. It seems obvious. And we forget to bother. Ask God. I admit at times I've done that. I've thought, gosh, this is a no-brainer. This is an opportunity that God's opened up. We can assume, can't we? Maybe on this occasion, the Gibeonite deception seemed reasonable to the Israelites, so they didn't bother to inquire of the Lord. You know, the worn-out sandals and the wine sins seemed plausible to them. Maybe Israel felt they could handle this situation alone. That's a dangerous, slippery road to think that we can handle life on our own. We are very quickly then on the road to arrogance, aren't we? Yes, I can handle this. I don't need to inquire of God. Now, here's something. The literal meaning of they did not ask counsel from the Lord is that they did not inquire at the mouth of the Lord. That's something, isn't it? Now, we're talking about face-to-face with God. We're talking about amazing intimacy with the Lord, close communion, a place where we receive the counsel of God. Wow, I want to be at that place. This is a whole different ballgame, isn't it, brothers and sisters, from praying about it. Seeking the counsel of God through our high priest will help us avoid the enemy's deception. Do you believe that? It will help us recognize the deceptive lies and to take every thought captive. When we find that place of inquiring at the mouth of God, we will recognize deception. Seeking the counsel of God is part of what it means, I believe, to be on a war footing. Therefore, you and I need the counsel of God. But what do we hear from the mouth of God? James 1 gives us a clue, I think. It tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who will give it to some of you. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith. You need wisdom. The Israelites needed wisdom with the evidence that was shown to them. Divine insight would have made a difference. They needed wisdom but neglected to ask for it. We're given the power of God to overcome all our enemies. But we also need the wisdom and the counsel of God to overcome those subtle deceptions that come our way. The worn out clothes, the rubbish shoes, the plausible story. Wisdom comes as we live in the word. Wisdom comes as we seek the now word of God, the spontaneous prophetic word from God. Wisdom comes as we seek to hear from the mouth of God. I love that phrase. I want to hear from the mouth of God. But let's get practical. What would life be like each morning if you got up 
and ask God a question. And you heard from the mouth of God. You said something like, who do you want to show love to today? Who do you want me to be generous to today? Who do you want me to show favor to? Who do you want me to tell my story to today? Ask God those questions, the, the why, the how, the when, the where, the who questions. Have I got all of them? Ask those questions of God. The mouth of God wants to speak to us. It was what Jesus did. He did it in the wilderness. He did it in the hills at night. He did it in the garden of Gethsemane. Are you hungry to hear the word of God for your life, for your future, for your destiny? On Thursday, we had a staff away day. Well, it was a morning away. Um, and uh, we, we worshipped and uh, we prayed and prophesied over each other. Simon prophesied six words which impacted me, which I can live with for years. Just in that little section, I heard the voice of God. I heard from the mouth of God. The prophetic is so, so powerful in our lives. We're a charismatic church. We accept prophecy, don't we? We don't despise it. We uh, hunger for it. So, in summary, be aware of the deceptive tactics of our enemy. Be on a war footing and seek counsel from Jesus, the wisdom giver. Seek prophetic input and we will win the battle. Christchurch, we can be strong and courageous. I've got two responses for us today. The first one, you need to do at home on your own, okay? Seek the counsel of God for yourself. Seek to hear from the mouth of God for yourself. Train yourself in it, practice in it. Start today, do it tomorrow morning. Come tomorrow evening ready to seek the counsel of God, yeah? Three people nodded, yes? Amen, that's one response. Another response that we've got for you this morning is that we're going to have a team up in the Pevensey room at 12 o'clock, so in half an hour, uh, to prophesy over you. So if you would like a prophetic word, you feel stirred today that you want a prophetic word, uh, then if you want to come upstairs at 12, we'll prophesy over everyone who comes. We might be there till 6, that's fine. I doubt it. I hope not. Um, but we will prophesy over you. Because we believe in prophecy. We need to push in for this stuff because it's important uh, for us all. Okay, can I ask the worship team to come back and uh, we'll pray. Let's stand to pray. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you so much that you want us to be strong and courageous. And Lord, you want us to be on a war footing. You want us to be ready for the battles ahead. Thank you that you've given us the armor of God, which protects us totally. Thank you, Lord, that with your counsel, we can avoid deception. Lord, help us to regularly seek your counsel, regularly be uh, in your presence 
and hearing words from the mouth of yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.